Hello, and welcome to the Work Podcast. My name is Anne-Marie Kerwin, America's editor, and today we're going to dive into the Work Guide to Cross-Media Effects, which explores the latest research on how to leverage multiple channels in campaign planning and get the most out of your marketing efforts. Here to discuss this with me is my colleague, Kathy Taylor, U.S. Commissioning Editor for Work. Hi, Kathy. Great to be on the podcast with you, Anne-Marie. So, Kathy, you led this global report, which published last week, and it's now available on work.com for work subscribers. So let's get into it. Can you give us a brief overview of the report and why it's important to attack the subject of cross-media effects now? Uh, What we've really tried to do with this report is look at the interplay between different channels, which is a somewhat vast subject. You can look at how linear TV and CTV work together, or newspapers and online display, TV and search, online and offline, out of home and mobile. The list is long. Um, But the really important thing is that increasingly brands have to learn to play across channels. And there are really three key reasons for this. One is that achieving reach for your advertising has never been harder. And I'm just going to share a fun fact concerning Uh, This, which I really should attribute to Ellie Bamford of Wonderman Thompson, who discussed this recently on stage at Cannes. But when you think of the most recent big TV moment, which happened just a few months ago, it was the finale of Succession on the network formerly known as HBO Max. It seemed like everybody was talking about it, but in fact, it reached only 3 million people. And I should also mention that only a portion of that audience is on an ad-supported version of the service. So if you're an advertiser, that wasn't that big a moment for you. And when you look back to the finale of MASH 40 years ago, that reached 106 million people in the U.S. And so that's a really stark illustration of what we all know, that there are very few big TV moments that we all experience anymore. So advertisers have to work a lot harder to find audiences. And those audiences are scattered across the media universe. That's a very good point. Um, So where can marketers find their audiences today? Uh, For better or for worse, kind of (laughs) everywhere. So, you know, one of the authors in the work guide, uh, Ganka Bubani of Kantar, noted something that um, is really interesting. And she said that big social media and streaming platforms are no longer serving niche objectives as in the earlier days of digital advertising. And they now bring reach as well as brand contributions to the table. And interestingly, I was having a conversation with someone at a major brand last week, and they said they actually reach more young parents through CTV than through linear. So, you know, the second reason kind of flows from the first, which is especially for younger demographics, you're going to entirely miss huge demographic slices if you don't embrace going deeper into selecting channels. And are you ready for number three? I am. The third is that for many brands, it's important to be able to plan and measure across the entire sales funnel from awareness through your purchase. And of course, doing that means planning across channels with a variety of strengths. So in short, if you're not planning out your campaigns across multiple channels, you're just lessening the chances of meeting whatever your brand objectives are. So there is a lot in the report, but let's just talk about three themes in the report that you think marketers need to know about. So yeah, the first one I'll discuss is channel selection. Um, And then from there, we'll move on to creative customization. And finally, spoiler alert, what's being done about measurement, which is both really necessary to making cross-media effects work and also really, really difficult. 
Okay, so channel selection. What's the research saying? Okay, fortunately, the basic guidance is really simple, and that's that using more channels is better. So using more channels is better. Remember that. Um, There's a couple of data points here. Um, Comscore has done analysis of hundreds of campaigns over time, and there's an article about this in the guide. And their data shows that using four platforms in a campaign can yield upticks in aided awareness, ad recall, favorability, purchase intent, and recommendation intent. Cantor has done similar analysis and has found that not only do multiple channels work together to bring more impact for the advertised brand, but the contribution that these synergies bring, as opposed to the effect they would each have in a vacuum, is increasingly important. And they did a big study that that looked at pre-2015 and post, and Pre-2015, these synergies made up 19% of campaign performance. And between 2015 and 2022, this increased to 36%. So that's a huge jump. It's also now true that more than a third of campaign impact comes from these synergy effects, which you know, basically I like to describe as the whole of the media parts adding up to, to more than their apparent sum. So you know, two platforms equal three instead of two, if, if you will. That's very rough math. But conversely, Kantar also found that 20% of touch points create 80% of the overall brand impact. And you know, on the face of it, that seems to, to fly in the face of the advice to invest in more channels. But the takeaway is that brands could stand to be more thoughtful about which channels they choose so that brand impact of channels across the board goes up. And, you know, that what Cantor is really saying is there's a tendency in this industry to chase the shiny new platform, but the advice is not not to do that if it's not a good fit for your brand. That makes sense, uh, even though it does seem complicated. Uh, yes, there are so many channels today. But what's happening with uh, one of our oldest channels, Linear TV, these days? Uh, linear TV, it's in an interesting place. Uh, it's still the lion's share of spend. And it delivers the most brand impact, but it's also becoming less cost effective. And Cantor found that Linear TV's share of spend has fallen by 6% to 28% since 2015. But meanwhile, channels including Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even point of sale actually over deliver in relation to investment. So there's a real imbalance here, right? And in part, that gets back to their earlier point. Are people being as thoughtful as they should be about which channels they choose? And Kantar's data suggests that even with the drop in linear TV spend, they're not there yet. And obviously, a relatively substantial portion of video budget is moving to all manner of CTV, YouTube, streaming services, and so forth. And there are a number of examples in the guide which look at how brands fare with with minimal or even no linear TV. So that's interesting. You know, once upon a time when broadcast TV ruled, media buyers would say you're never going to get fired for buying TV. But it sounds like with it becoming less cost effective, there is evidence that you don't always need TV for brand building. Do you have any other examples of how TV is faring against the other video channels? Well, first, it feels like the thing you'd get fired for these days is not buying CTV. Um, But one study that really played up the role of YouTube as opposed to linear was a U.S. one that's in the guide that that Burger King conducted with Google, and which used the same creative across linear TV and YouTube. And there's a reason to not run the same creative, which we'll get into in a minute. But 
this campaign was for a promotional deal. So there was definitely the objective of driving store traffic, but also Burger King wanted to bring in new. And yes, that probably means younger customers. It found that YouTube ads delivered upticks across all of their objectives, promotional uptakes, store sales, and transactions, and it was really helpful in attracting new customers. And when only linear TV ads were used, only the promotional uptake increased, store sales were flat, and transactions actually fell. And this kind of makes sense. I mean, people of all ages watch YouTube, but honestly, people of all ages don't watch linear TV. And it, it looks like linear TV's role was mainly to bring existing customers into the store, but it wasn't really doing much to advance the brand with new customers. Let's move on to your second theme. Uh, you mentioned custom creative is also very important. Why is that? Uh, this is an area that really cries out for emphasis because we, we talk a lot in the industry about planning effectively across different media channels, um, and that's really important. Um, but in order to reach the right audiences, brands also have to make a commitment, um, not just to the right channels, but to creative that works within those channels. Uh, and the, the audience, you know, seeing your ad, you know, in a scroll through their Instagram is definitely in a different mode than when they're watching live sports on linear TV or when they're binging on old SNL clips on YouTube. And, you know, that doesn't even get into the big differences in formats across channels, but you know that not all channels are the same. So it's not easy to do creative iterations um, and AI is helping with this, but it's really not going to solve the whole problem. And so um, I'm going to quote a little bit from Can here, um, that one presentation uh, that, that was, was done at the festival featured Tom Roach of Jellyfish Global. And he said, creating bespoke ads for each platform channel and format achieves better brand equity. And I think it's important to dive a little deeper into what is meant by custom creative. Um, what it's not is coming up with an entirely new campaign for each platform. It is about continuing to use campaign and brand assets across platforms, but in ways that work for that platform. So I, this is where things like sonic branding and other distinctive brand assets become really important. So Roach quoted Kantar Millward Brown research that showed that using the same ads across platforms resulted in a lift of 32%, but going one step further and tailoring ads in the same campaign to each platform caused another 13% lift. And he also, I won't walk through them here, but he also walked through some very specific advice, um, which you can find in the guide about how, how these um, ads specific to these platforms actually um, increased, increased a lot of positive brand metrics. So it sounds like it even goes beyond just which platform or channel a marketer is using, but where within that platform the ad will appear. Yeah, I mean, you can customize to platform, of course, but, you know, many platforms have a variety of different ad options within them. And the understanding of how this all works is absolutely exploding and something to pay attention to. And one piece of research, and, and my understanding is that that this will 
be ongoing is a study that um, Meta and Realize, which measures attention, did with the media consultant Bill Harvey. And it looked at how ads performed across different mobile environments, um, feed, short form, and stream. And it was a really big study. It, it was 6,000 mobile consumers, 17,000 video creative units. And um, it wasn't just on Meta. Um, they were obviously deeply involved, but they looked not just at Facebook and Instagram, but also Hulu, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Big study. So it found that engagement, visibility, and attentiveness varied greatly by environment. Um, video ads seen in a feed scored far higher on engagement than video ads in short-term and stream environments. And stream ads had the highest visibility and attentiveness scores. So What's interesting, though, is that while environments with higher attention also saw higher ad recall, each environment scored comparably on brand recognition, ad liking, and persuasion. And honestly, I'm not exactly sure what that's telling us, but I think it probably also speaks to the needs to customize while also keeping some campaign elements consistent so that you know people easily recognize what's being advertised. So you're thinking that part of that finding has to do with how familiar people are with a brand to begin with. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there were some very well-known brands involved with the research, like Kellogg's. So you can definitely see where the fact that a consumer has knowledge of some of the brands in the study would help those brands have a leg up in some attention um, metrics. I mean, they're not introducing consumers to anything that they don't already know about in some form. And there's actually one part of the guide where we talk a little bit about how a mature brand can plan differently across media than a startup brand can, because with a startup brand, you're really introducing the entire concept of what your brand is for the first time. And established brands just get a head start when it comes to mental availability, because literally, you know, these brands have already taken up space in your head, you know? So again, it really comes down to being thoughtful about your approach to creative within the context of being thoughtful about your channel selection. Okay, that brings us, though, to the third theme, measurement, which is a big thorny area. So tell us, how do we measure across all these channels? Well, this is where things get even more complicated, as if they weren't already. Um, you can, of course, give all this great advice about being thoughtful about channel selection and custom creative, but at some point, you have to have the data in place to know what's working and be able to plan and optimize against it. And, you know, the truth is, and I, I know you know this, Anne-Marie, um, that the industry has never been set up very well for cross-media measurement. And it certainly hasn't gotten easier as channels have exploded. And, you know, the how is really hard. And perhaps the only company that offers the full span of advertising with any scale from upper funnel TV brand awareness through to sales is Amazon. But when you think of all the other media platforms out there, you know, Facebook, Google, NBC, Universal, Roku, et cetera, um, you know, there's, there's just walled gardens everywhere and everyone's been bemoaning it for the last few years. But the truth is there have been walled gardens for quite a long time. So with that said, one of the more interesting things I stumbled across when creating this report is something called the Halo Cross Media Measurement Framework that hopes to solve for this. The Halo Cross-Media Measurement Framework. Okay, what is that? Okay, it sounds really mystical, doesn't it? 
Mm-hmm. But it was originally created by the World Federation of Advertisers and was built for adaptability to local markets and to be privacy compliant. And the local markets are meant to be able to pull together data sets that are representative of target markets and populations. And then measurement reports can be produced using a set of Halo APIs. So who's testing it? So in the UK, it's this entity called Origin, which is spun out of the advertiser trade group ISBA. Um, So they're validating the testing of the framework with participation from major media agencies, including Group M and OMD, major marketers, including Procter & Gamble, Mars, and Tesco, and media players like Meta, TikTok, Google, and the Trade Desk. So very big players. In the U.S., it's a little unclear who some of the agencies, brands, and media companies are. Um, who are part of this testing, but it's being managed by the ARF Analytics Council, which is the joint venture between the ANA and the ARF. So it's clear that there's some big backing behind it in the U.S. as well. So a serious effort for sure. Um, uh, In the guide, you talk about how this measurement framework centers around the concept of the virtual ID. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think first it's worth, worth it to briefly discuss the different data inputs that are the building blocks of virtual IDs. And it's mapping up somewhat differently in different countries. But in the U.S., the data is broken into two sets. And one is called transaction data, and that's ad server logs and publisher-provided data. And a lot of that data is first party. And then calibration data, which is made up of census data and a representative online panel. And From all of those inputs, the hope is you can build a highly accurate population of virtual IDs. And just to explain what a virtual ID is, it differs from what qualified at an earlier point as a privacy compliant way of targeting. And that was really knowing a lot of data points about an individual, but not knowing their name. This is about virtual IDs being almost proxies for real people. Um, And one person I talked to while I was investigating this called them mannequins, if you will. But it's it's that they aren't actual people, but since they are representative of actual people's attributes, they can be used for measurement, if that makes any sense. Okay, so that's new to us, mannequins. That's a new thing. (laughs) Um, So tell me, what about what are the virtual IDs measuring? Uh, Initially, Halo plans to focus and I should probably say origin and whatever the U.S. entity is going to be called, they plan to focus on measuring cross-media reach and frequency. But the eventual plan is also to measure business outcomes. So it's pretty ambitious. Oh, yeah. So when's it launching? And what do you think it'll look like once it's available to marketers? So um, the expectation for the U.K. product is sometime in 2024. And the timing may be similar in the U.S. And the eventual goal is for this to be a commercial product. And yes, other peop- other major players involved in this are Comscore, Kantar, Accenture, and VideoAmp, um, probably among others. And they're all involved in the validation work and some of the backend elements. So it seems like there are a lot of players who want in on the ground floor. So part of this is sounding familiar. Hasn't the industry tried and failed at this for years? What What makes this different? Well, first of all, yes, the industry has has tried and failed for years. Um, but there's a couple of things that may make this different. One is there's so much major backing. Um, but having listened to the webinar on the U.S. Halo work, it's on YouTube. If you're really wonky, you should totally check it out. 
Um, you can tell there's a sense that the early returns on using this form of data collection and analysis is working. And yes, I'm a little concerned that it sounds too good to be true. But on the other hand, if it weren't showing promise, I, I really think the different entities involved wouldn't be interested in talking about it. Well, it definitely sounds like a significant effort that we need to continue to follow. Um, so outside of Halo, is there anything else going on in the measurement space that we should also be checking out? Um, people really need to keep an eye on all that's going on in the area of attention. That's a big topic for the industry and for work. And there's just more and more research coming out about this. And the Meta Realize work that I, I referenced a few minutes ago is part of it. A lot of it, as, as much of our audience knows, is happening because of advances in neuroscience, such as eye tracking, that give researchers a much better idea of whether people are engaging with advertising. And when you really look back over the years, most measurement has, about, has been about that having the potential to be seen. Uh, if you look at set-top box data or viewability metrics, those are two examples um, of metrics that tend to focus on the potential of an ad to be seen. But measuring attention focuses on the subject of was it seen and what did a consumer get out of it when they saw it and what emotions did they feel when they saw it. So in that context, it's really interesting to look at some of the work by Karen Nelson Field, who's one of the foremost experts in this area. And, and fortunately for work, she's also a frequent contributor. Uh, she's found that some 75% of every ad bought using a Media Ratings Council compliant currency delivers no human attention, nothing. Oh my. <laughs> so here we are. Yeah, here we have these these currencies is supposed to, you know, that's all approved and it still doesn't do anything. So she wrote a piece for work a bit ago where she put it really clearly. She noted that you might buy a million impressions and your competitor might buy a million impressions, but the volume of human attention achieved could be very different in each case. So where does that insight lead? Um, we're certainly not there yet, but it would seem to lead to media value in part being determined by viewer attention. And again, it's a, it's a thorny one because the quality of creative plays a big role in attention as well, but it's pretty clear that not all impressions are created equal. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. And even if brands make internal determinations of what media channels and opportunities are worth worthwhile for them and what aren't, it does change the game of how we think about planning and buying media. And there's a lot more depth there that for the sake of this podcast, I won't go into, but we have a lot of information about attention, both in the guide and on work itself. So it's something to keep an eye on anyway. Yes, that's definitely true. Well, thank you, Kathy, for diving into what's a very complicated and necessary subject. You're welcome. It was so nice having you on today. <laughs> Thanks. So for any Wark subscriber who wants to read more about cross-media effects, the guide is now available on Wark.com. And if you don't already, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>